Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we bless you and praise you this morning for your unspeakable gift of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that you would fill our hearts with awe and worship and praise as we consider what you have done for us in him and through him. For your glory, we ask this. Amen. I'm going to begin with a little bit of an experiment, and kids, I want to encourage you to join in on this. I'm going to begin with a statement, and I want you to finish the statement, okay? With a word or two or three, however many words you think. And, uh, but what you need to understand is that there is no one right answer to this. Uh, no one right completion to this statement, okay? I just want you to, in a semi-orderly way, uh, so that I can hear what you're saying, I want you to finish this statement, okay? Christmas is about... Begin. About what? Begin. Begin? Oh, it's about to begin. <laughs> I love it. Very good. It's about to begin. Okay. But that's not exactly what I had in mind. <laughs> Christmas is about... Okay, Jesus. Christmas is about... Giving. Salvation. Love. Relationships. Family, hope, faithfulness, very good, forgiveness, life, all great answers and all very true. 
all good answers and all very true. But the one word that I want to focus on this morning is a word that we read several times in the text that we read. And that word is worship. Worship. Christmas is about worship. I think that I'm, I can be pretty confident when I say that when we hear the word worship, we usually think of it, probably always think of it, within a religious context. Context. You will often see as you drive through town on the marquee of church buildings, come worship with us. The first definition of the word worship in the English dictionary is to show reverence and adoration for a deity. No wonder we think of it in terms of religion. In the Bible, there are several different words translated worship. And they actually have different meanings, including to kiss, to bow down, to make an idol, to serve, to revere, to adore. Each of these words shapes for us the full idea, the full concept of what it means to worship. And the word here in Matthew 2 is actually the one that literally means to kiss. But it's not talking about a romantic kiss. It's talking about a kiss of reverence and adoration. And metaphorically, it came to mean prostrating oneself before another. In our secularized society, non-religious people usually assume that worship is reserved for the religious. Secular historians and anthropologists claim that worship evolved from polytheism, the worship of many gods, to monotheism, and they give Judaism as the major example of that monotheistic worship. And yet the scripture teaches the exact opposite. From the beginning, human beings knew that there was one and one only true God. But, Paul says in Romans 1, that because of sin, mankind, quote, exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And that's where we are today in our own culture. The God of the Bible claims to be the only true God, and therefore the only one worthy of worship. Isaiah 45, 21 through 22 quotes God as saying this, There is no other God besides me. Righteous God, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. Yet modern Western culture scoffs at the idea of worshiping a being whom we cannot see and views the polytheism and the monotheism of both the past and the present as nonsense, superstitious nonsense, in fact. Get rid of that bug. Yet, there seems to be a natural tendency in all human beings to worship. And I would submit to you that even those who ridicule the practice of worshiping an unseen God cannot free themselves from this propensity to worship. 
The second definition in the dictionary of worship is to treat someone or something with the reverence and adoration of a deity. In our modern Western society, people worship celebrities in music and sports. They worship financial success. They worship political aspirations. They worship relationships and many other things, many other pursuits that consume their energies and which they hope will bring them some kind of meaning and fulfillment in this life. Worship is alive and well, even in our extremely secularized society. In fact, to reject the worship of the one true God doesn't eliminate worship from anyone's life. It simply results in the worship of something or someone in his place, and that something or someone becomes our God. The story of the wise men, I like, I like the actual term from the Greek, which is magi, and I'm going to use the term magi. The story of the Magi here in Matthew is the story of Gentile men of prominence traveling a great distance to bring, to bring gifts and to bow down before the newborn king of the Jews. It reminds us of the ultimate purpose of Jesus' birth that Paul talks about in Philippians 2 verses 10 and 11. This is what he said, at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I also believe that it emphasizes to us that our most appropriate and important response to this time of celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ is to worship. So from our text this morning, I want to look at how worship is demonstrated by the Magi, and then bringing in other texts for our consideration, I want to answer the question, why is Jesus worthy of our worship? So we begin with the question, what is worship and how is it demonstrated to us by these men? And the first thing that we see about worship is that it values something or someone above everything else. This is evident in the decision that the Magi made to travel to Jerusalem in order to find and worship this newborn king of the Jews. And in order to see this, we need to understand a little bit about these men. Contrary to the traditional Christmas carol, We Three Kings of Orient Are, that's never been one of my favorite but that's neither here nor there, I guess. But contrary to that Christmas carol, which was written in the 19th century, the Magi were not kings. And the Bible doesn't tell us how many there were. The number three comes from what? The three gifts that they brought, exactly. But, but given the response of King Herod and of all Jerusalem, as, as Matthew says, the Magi who came may have been more than three, and they were at least two, right? Because it, it talks of them in the plural. 
They may have been more than three, and they were certainly a large enough entourage to make a stir in Jerusalem when they arrived. If there were only a few of them, they came with a large number of others who accompanied them on their trip. And the word magi, this is the word that we get our English word magic from. The, uh, the word magi in ancient cultures referred to men who held positions as wise men, teachers, priests, interpreters of dreams, astrologers, and astronomers. And they were men whom kings consulted concerning matters of importance to them. So they were high-level officials, but they were not kings. Daniel, in fact, one of the captains, captives from Israel who was taken to Babylon, became a leader among the wise men of Babylon, the magi of Babylon, who are identified in Daniel chapter 2 as magicians, enchanters, and sorcerers. That's what they're called. So these magi probably came from either Babylon or the country of the Medes and Persians. And Matthew says that they had seen a star west of their country, and they interpreted that star to be a sign of the one who was born, the king of the Jews. Now where they came from would have been about 900 miles, and we know from the book of Ezra that when the Jews first came back to Jerusalem... They left the same area that these magi would have come from, and it took them four months to get there. So we know that it must have taken these magi at least four months to get to, the Jerus to, get to Jerusalem, and they went there as a result of seeing a star. Much has been written and said about what this star might have been, but there's really no reason, I think, for us to doubt that it was exactly what Matthew says it is, that it was, it was a star. The Magi spent a lot of time observing the heavens, believing that God gave signs to men in them. And they were familiar with constellations and planets. They knew the difference between a star and a planet. So I'm going to believe that it was a star. And it's also very possible that Daniel and other Jewish captives from hundreds of years earlier had taught many of these wise men of Babylon and, uh, and Media and Persia about the prophecies contained in the Hebrew scriptures concerning the coming of God's anointed one, God's Messiah, God's King. And for some reason that Matthew doesn't reveal, these men were able to interpret the sign of the star in heaven to mean that this promised king had finally been born. And they were convinced that there was nothing more important for them to do but to take a leave of absence from all of their duties where they were from and travel those 900 miles to worship this newborn king. They valued him above anything and everything else in their lives for that, at least for that moment in time. And that is the first aspect of worship that we see. To value someone above everything and everyone else. The second way in which they demonstrate worship is their submission to him as the supreme authority. And we see this in verse 11 that we read this morning. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. This must have been 
an absolutely amazing sight. I mean, can you really imagine it? These men dressed in royal clothing, royal attire, grown men, and they come to the home or to the at least the dwelling place of a peasant family with a little child who may have been six months old, may have been a year and a half old. We don't know exactly how old Jesus was at this time, but he was a little child. And these men <laughs> bow down and worship him. They, they bow prostrate before him. Now, did they know that he was the Savior of the world? Matthew doesn't tell us that. And all of the commentators that I consulted agree that they did not necessarily worship him as divine, but they did recognize him as above them, someone to submit to, to obey. And that is a necessary feature of true worship of God. We must submit ourselves to God as the supreme authority over us. So that's the second aspect of worship that we see demonstrated by these magi. The third that we see is in their giving of their material wealth in order to honor him. Three gifts, as we mentioned, are described. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And, you know, I grew up in a... a church where they believed everything literally. And so they tended to not look at anything, um, interpret things symbolically. Uh, but there are, there are many people who do interpret these gifts symbolically. Uh, they say that the gold represents Jesus' kingship. And the frankincense, incense, is burned to a deity in sacrificial worship. And so they say that the frankincense symbolizes Jesus' divinity, represents his, his deity, and the myrrh then represents his humanity. But I am skeptical of this kind of interpretation, unless, I'm not saying that things can't be interpreted symbolically. There are many symbols in, in the scripture. I'm skeptical of this uh, kind of interpretation, though, unless there is some other scripture to lend its support. And I, I tend to concur with Albert Barnes. He was a 19th century uh, theologian and commentator. He says this, and I quote, The offerings here referred to were made because they were the most valuable which the country of the Magi produced. They were tokens of respect and homage which they paid to the newborn king of the Jews. They demonstrated their high regard for him and their belief that he was to be an illustrious prince. And I, I, I believe that's exactly what the purpose of these gifts were. And they also demonstrate for us a very practical side of what it means to worship. God gives good things to us in order to allow us to enjoy the life that he is also given to us. And it is an act of worship to give a portion of those things back to him in order to support the work of the gospel, in order to share with those who have need, and in order to accomplish good in the world around us. 
And so that is an act of worship. And I believe that Matthew recorded this event that centers around the birth of Jesus to emphasize the fact that when we remember and celebrate his birth, our first response should be to worship him, to worship him. So that is what we learn from the Magi about worshiping our king, Jesus. But that brings us to the second question. Why is Jesus worthy of our worship? And I'm going to begin by saying that my answer is in no way going to be exhaustive. (laughs) There are so many reasons to worship Jesus Christ. And we are only going to look at two. And the first one will be what we find in this story that we read, this true story that we read. The second will be found by looking at a few other texts. And so the first reason Jesus is worthy of our worship is exactly the same reason that the Magi traveled 900 miles to Jerusalem to worship him. Jesus is the king of the Jews. Jesus is the king of the Jews. But the fact that Matthew records Gentile magi coming to Jerusalem to bow down before him also tells us that Jesus is not only the king of the Jews. Jesus is the king of the Gentiles. And do you understand that when you say Jews and Gentiles, you mean everyone? And so Jesus is the king of the world. Jesus is God's anointed one, the Christ, or the Messiah. The Christ is what it says in verse verse 4. He is the Messiah, the anointed one of God. He is the one of whom Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 9-6. And Dave read this in his call to worship this morning. For, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. That means he's king. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. No one ever else has a name like that. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is the one who Daniel saw in his vision in Daniel seven thirteen through 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What a king. What a description of a king. He is the one in Revelation 19 on whose robe and thigh are written King of kings and Lord of lords. He will rule over the kingdom of God forever and ever. Now, no matter how hard we try, it is difficult, if not impossible, 
for us to conceive a king who has all authority over everyone and everything. We, we are 20th and 21st century people. We've only known in America democracy. What is a king? And yet Jesus Christ is king. There is no authority above him. Every authority in this world right now today is below the authority of King Jesus. The new heaven and the new earth will know nothing of any kind of a government that we see in the world right now. It will only know one, and that is Jesus Christ is the king over all. And because of that, he's worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our worship. The second reason that Jesus is worthy of our worship, we find back in that same Philippians chapter 2 passage, but only in verses 6 through 8. This is what Paul says, this King of Kings, this Lord of Lords, an unimaginable, powerful authority. Paul says this of him, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That's what we're celebrating today. That's what we're celebrating right now. Jesus being born, the Son of God being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I mean, do you hear how amazing that is? When we see who he is and to see what he did. Mark 10.45, Jesus said this. You're very familiar with this. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Revelation chapter 5, Jesus is praised as the one who threw his blood on the cross, quote, ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus as king could have come rightfully against all nations in judgment the first time. He could have done that. But he didn't do that. He came in order to bring reconciliation to those who were his enemies. Reconciliation to you and to me. To ransom us. To buy us back. Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, humbled himself to the point of dying on the cross in our place so that through faith in him, we could be reconciled to God, receive the gift of eternal life, and reign with him in his kingdom. That is amazing. I know that we talk about this all the time, but when you really stop and think about it, when we celebrate his birth now and we look at it, and and look at it for what it really means, it is an amazing truth. 
He came for you and he came for me. He was born to die and be raised from the dead in order that you and I might live and reign with him. That is the reason he is worthy of our worship. He is worthy to be valued above all else. He is worthy of our willful, joyful submission to his authority over our lives. And he is worthy of us giving of our efforts, our means, and our very selves to serve him. So, I'm almost done. Kids, I made this a little short because I knew you were going to be here. So I'm almost done. Christmas is about worship. Christmas is about worship. Worship of Jesus the King, who took a low and lonely birth, as one of the songs we sing says, who slept beneath the stars that he had made, who bore our sins on the cross, who rose from the dead, breaking its power over us, and who is reigning in heaven right now and will come again to establish his kingdom of justice, righteousness, and peace, in which we will live forever if we belong to him through faith. He is worthy of our worship. This is a time of celebration for the eternal hope that Christ has given us. And it is a time of reflection and recommitment to not allow our own hearts to be drawn away to worship those other things that can only satisfy for a brief moment, but in the end leave us empty and lost. Instead, Christmas is a time to remind us that we worship the one in whose presence is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. Will you pray with me? Lord, I think, I know for myself that I often take for granted the real truth of the amazing, beautiful gospel that the King of kings and Lord of lords humbled himself and died on the cross for me, for each person in this room. Lord, that is an amazing story, but it's not just a story, it is the truth. And for that, we praise you. For that, we worship you. And we long for the day when we will be able to worship you together, no longer being burdened by this sin that we tend to carry with us so easily. Lord, we long for that day, even as was prayed earlier, how long, how long before you come, Lord. We look for that day and we praise you until that day comes for your amazing grace in giving us eternal life through faith in what you did on the cross for us. Praise you and glory to you. Amen.